Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Catholic Reason, a radio show produced by St. Michael Catholic Radio, where we explain the whys behind Catholic beliefs concerning issues of faith, morality, and culture. My name is Carlo Broussard. I'm the host for The Catholic Reason, a staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, and a member of the Chancery Evangelization team at the Diocese of Tulsa in eastern Oklahoma. Every Thursday, I come to you at 4 p.m. on 94.9, and we think through various claims made by the Catholic Church and provide reasons behind those claims. You can download and listen to the show anytime you want by searching The Catholic Reason in any podcast search engine and just download the show. Also, if you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the air as we begin to develop a segment for future episodes where I answer your questions, you can do so by emailing me at carlo, K-A-R-L-O, carlo at stmichaelradio.com. Friends, thank you so much for joining me this week. We're going to be picking up with more challenges to the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock. In our last week's episode of The Catholic Reason, we looked at some challenges, some initial challenges, to our claim that Peter is the rock of Matthew 16, 18, and we showed why those challenges don't succeed. Recall, the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, namely the rock upon which Christ promises to build his church, is significant because we see in that the biblical revelation that our Lord constituted Peter to be that very visible source of unity for the apostles and for the whole universal church, thereby making Peter the leader of his church here on earth, Peter being that identifying marker for the true church of Jesus Christ, precisely because wherever the foundation is, there's the true church of Christ. Wherever the foundation is upon which Christ promises to build his church, there's the true church of Christ. And if Peter is the rock of the church in Matthew 16, 18, then it follows that he is the visible foundation and thereby the identifying marker of Christ's true church and thus the leader of Christ's church. And given that historically speaking, Christ, uh, excuse me, Peter died as the bishop of Rome, his successors continue to be that visible foundation. His successors in the bishopric of Rome continue to be that identifying marker for the true church of Christ, continue in that leadership role established by Christ to continue in the ministry of St. Peter to be the universal shepherd of Christ's church here on earth, to continue to be that visible principle and source of unity for Christ's church here on earth, for all the successors to the apostles, namely the bishops, and all the faithful throughout the whole world within Christ's church. And so that's the significance of Peter being the rock. And in previous episodes, we gave reasons why we think Peter is the rock. In our last week's episode, we looked at some initial Protestant challenges to the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock, some Protestant alternative explanations or readings of this text in Matthew chapter 16. Now, in this episode, for this week of The Catholic Reason, we're going to look at some more challenges to the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock. 
and some good challenges. And it's important to articulate these Protestant challenges to the Catholic claim because often my brothers and sisters in the pew, Catholics, can unfortunately begin to think that Protestants don't buy into the papal arguments, right, and arguments for the papacy and the papacy, etc., because maybe they're closed-minded or they're ignorant or they're just stubborn or stuff like that. I've encountered that among many of my Catholic brothers and sisters, unfortunately, but it's important to know that our Protestant brothers and sisters have some very reasonable alternative explanations and readings of the text that at least initially could we can see how one would be justified in remaining a Protestant in the face of the Catholic arguments. But upon further examination, we can see, I would conclude, that these Protestant challenges to the Catholic claim ultimately do not succeed and do not refute the Catholic claim, and that the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock is the best explanation of what we read in Matthew chapter 16, verses, verse 18 in particular, and then also verse 19 and the surrounding context. So I share that with you, friends, because it's important that we have a sympathetic understanding of for our Protestant brothers and sisters and to recognize that they have good challenges that are worth considering and giving answers to those challenges. And that's what we're trying to do here in these few episodes of The Catholic Reason and looking at the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock. Okay, so... Let's get on with it. We're going to look at three Protestant challenges in this week's episode of The Catholic Reason. Now, recall from the end of our last episode last week, if you were listening, we looked at a challenge that attempted to argue the rock was Peter's confession of faith. And there was a particular reason for that conclusion that we looked at namely the fact that Jesus switches from the second personal pronoun you in referring to Simon now called Peter to the demonstrative adjective this. And some Protestants will conclude from that switch that the demonstrative adjective this must be referring to something other than a person, thereby not Peter, and the only other thing that it could possibly refer to, if we exclude Peter from the mix, would be Peter's confession of faith. There in verse, I think, 16 and 17, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, of course, Jesus responds and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Now, there's another reason why some Protestants will argue that the metaphorical rock upon which Christ promises to build his church refers to Peter's confession of faith. So yet another reason, another argument that will be proposed for why they conclude this. Now, the, the reason is, or the challenge is here, is that the central theme of the passage, so it's argued, is the identity of Jesus, not Peter. And based on that evidence, some Protestants will conclude that the metaphorical rock must be referring to Peter's confession of faith in Jesus, the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. So given that the identity of Jesus is the central focus of the passage, in light of the confession of faith, the metaphorical rock upon which Christ promises to build his church must be that confession of faith. Otherwise, 
we introduce a switch and a shift in focus from the identity of Peter, excuse me, the identity of Jesus to Peter. And so Protestants will say that's unreasonable and a strain of the text. So famous Protestant apologist James White states the argument this way. So he writes um, in his, let's see here, this is in an article uh, that he wrote in 2008, uh, which you can get at uh, the Alpha and Omega Ministries website of White there. Upon this rock, Jesus is speaking to Peter about the rock. And it's an article that he wrote in response to Robert Singenis, an old Catholic apologist. And so White writes the following, The confession that Peter gives of the Messiahship of Jesus is the central thought of the entire passage. It's the reason for the trip to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus indicates that Peter has just been the recipient of divine revelation, and that's in verses 15 through 17, right before Jesus says, you shall be called Petros or Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. White continues, God in his grace has given to Peter an insight that does not find its origin in the will of man, but in God the Father himself. The content, he goes on, of that confession is in fact divine revelation, and we agree there. We have no quarrels with that. Immediately impressed upon the soul of Peter. This is the immediate context of verse 18. And to divorce, verse 18, upon this rock up of my church, from what came before leads to the errant shift of attention from the identity of Christ to the identity of Peter that is found in Roman Catholic exegesis. Certainly, we cannot accept the idea presented in Roman theology that immediately upon pronouncing the benediction upon Peter's confession of faith, the focus shifts away from that confession and what it reveals to Peter himself and some office with successors based upon him. All right, so that's White's argument. And so how, how can we respond to that? How can we meet this Protestant challenge? Well, first of all, the objection wrongly assumes, so I will argue here, that there is no shift in focus to Peter. So White's assuming that there is no shift in focus, and so he's claiming since there is no shift in focus from Jesus to Peter, Catholics are wrong in interpreting this text in the metaphorical rock as a reference to Peter. But, I, as I'm going to argue here, there is a shift in focus from the identity of Jesus to Peter. There is evidence that we can put forward to substantiate that claim that there is a shift and thereby continue the interpretation of the metaphorical rock as referring to Peter. Yes, we affirm that Jesus' identity as Messiah and the Son of God is the focal point of the text. Peter does make that profession of faith, but Jesus' response to that confession of faith is a blessing of Peter. Jesus begins to bless Peter in response to the confession of faith, and bestow upon him the many blessings. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to thee. You are Petros, Peter, and upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then I give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. So Jesus does shift the focus from himself to Peter simply because of Peter's confession of faith in Christ. We articulated one Protestant challenge, 
particularly from famous Protestant apologist James White, that says, well, Catholic exegesis here in Matthew 16, 18, and saying that the metaphorical rock refers to Peter, introduces a shift from the focal point of the identity of Jesus to Peter, which is not in the text. And so I'm responding and saying, no, there is evidence for a shift in focus from the identity of Jesus to Peter. And I began to articulate that answer in responding to this Protestant challenge before the break, so I want to pick up back up with that answer. Matthew explicitly tells us that Jesus begins to direct his comments to Peter. Peter confesses Jesus' identity as Messiah and Son of God, but then Jesus begins to respond to Peter on account of in response to that confession of faith. And so consider, we pointed this out a couple of weeks ago when we're looking at initial reasons to think Peter is the rock, but it becomes relevant here in response to this Protestant challenge, and that is the second person singular you is used seven times in three verses, all of which are directed to Peter. Again, in response to Peter's confession of faith. So consider there in verse 17, the first part of verse 17, in response to Peter saying, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So Jesus is begin to, beginning to direct his address to Peter. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, a reference to Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. Then in verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. <laughs> so the second person singular you used seven times in three verses. The sh There is a shift of focus from Peter's confession of faith that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God to Peter himself and a bestowal of blessings upon Peter from Jesus on account of the confession of faith. So there is a shift of focus. And given that shift of focus to Peter, it would provide reasonable, uh, it would provide reason to think that the metaphorical rock that Christ speaks of would be a reference to Peter, given the shift of focus from the identity to Jesus to Peter. R.T. France, a famous New Testament scholar, comments as follows, The wordplay and the whole structure of the passage demands that this verse is every bit as much Jesus' declaration about Peter as verse 16 was Peter's declaration about Jesus. And that's a good uh, contrast there. You have Peter's declaration of who Jesus is, and then in response, Jesus declares who Peter will be in the church, the role that he will play in the church that Jesus is building. And as the Catholic argument goes, namely, the metaphorical rock. And so interpreting the metaphorical rock as a reference to Peter fits within this narrative, within the flow of the narrative and what's happening here. Now, there's a second reason uh, to think that there is a shift in focus from the identity of Jesus and what Jesus is saying, what Peter says about Jesus, and uh, the shift in focus to Peter and what Jesus is saying about Peter. And that is uh, my colleague and good friend Jimmy Aiken's insight to the very structure of the text itself. If we look at verses 17 through 19, 
in which verse 18 is embedded and the phrase, upon this rock I build my church, we notice a structure of three essential declarations that Jesus makes concerning Peter, each of which is followed by a longer explanation that unpacks the declaration made. And once you see that structure, it becomes very clear that the phrase upon this rock is referring to Peter. So here's the first essential declaration. There in the first part of verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then you have, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Notice an essential declaration that's unpacked and further explained by two more statements in the rest of verse 17. Second essential declaration, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And then the third essential declaration, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice how in that third essential declaration, you have two statements, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those two statements clearly are explaining that essential declaration, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Go back up to that first essential declaration. When Jesus says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, that clearly is explaining the blessing that Jesus bestows upon Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So, whenever we read, and on this rock I build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, those two statements clearly are explaining and unpacking that second essential declaration, I tell you, you are Peter, like we have explanations for the other essential declarations. So once you articulate these three essential declarations and you see that there are statements to further unpack and explain the first essential declaration and the third essential declaration, then it becomes clear that the statements following the second essential declaration are meant to unpack and unfold and explain that second essential declaration. And within that explanation, of the second essential declaration that I tell you, you are Peter, you have the phrase, upon this rock. So just like flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, refers to the blessing upon Simon Barjona, and binding and loosing refers to the bestowal of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, so too the statement upon this rock refers to Jesus' statement to Simon, I tell you, you are Peter. It's explaining the name change. It's given the reason why Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, which means in Greek and in Aramaic, rock. And we gave evidence for that a couple of weeks ago uh, when we're looking at reasons for Jesus, for Peter being the rock. And so given this structure of the passage, which is an insight that I got from my colleague and good friend at Catholic Answers, Jimmy Aiken, and secondly, for the use of the second personal pronoun, singular pronoun, you, seven times in three verses, there is clearly a shift in focus from what Peter says about Jesus to what Jesus says about Peter. And given that shift of focus, it's reasonable to conclude that the metaphorical rock is referring to Peter and not primarily his confession of faith. Again, remember in our last week's episode, we said that we as Catholics affirm that the metaphorical rock can refer to Peter's confession of faith, but in a secondary sense, not a primary sense. The primary referent of the metaphorical rock, so we're arguing here, 
is Peter. And so White's argument does not succeed for that reason. He wrongly assumes there is no shift, but there is a shift in focus to Peter. Okay, so that's how we respond to White's challenge there. Now, there's another challenge, another Protestant challenge to the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock. So far, in the the last challenge that we've looked at was arguing as giving a reason why the metaphorical rock refers to Peter's confession of faith, offering an alternative explanation for what the metaphorical rock refers to. We're claiming it's Peter. The previous challenge was saying, no, it's Peter's confession of faith, and here's the reason why. We looked at a similar argument last in last week's episode of the Catholic Reason uh, that said that stated, "Hey, this is the reason why some Protestants think that the metaphorical rock refers to Peter's confession of faith, not Peter." Okay, so there's another set of Protestant comebacks to this Catholic claim that Peter is the rock, and that is that Peter is the rock. They will affirm Peter is the rock, but reject the inference that we're making as Catholics, that Peter is therefore somehow unique in the role he plays as the foundation of the church. And so that's important to categorize this set of comebacks here. We're going to look at two Protestant comebacks that can be categorized within this category. Affirming Peter is the rock, but rejecting the inference that we're making as Catholics, that Peter is somehow unique in the role that he plays as the foundation of the church. Now, one of these Protestant comebacks appeals to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, where Paul teaches the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And well-known Protestant apologists Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie uh, make this argument in their book, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences. Two things are clear from this. They state all the apostles, not just Peter, or the foundation of the church. And then they go on to add, and the only one who was given a place of uniqueness or prominence was Christ, the capstone. And so the argument here is basically, since Peter is not given any sort of unique role as the foundation of the church, here in Ephesians 2, we can't conclude that he's the unique foundation of the church in Matthew 16, 18. We were beginning to articulate a second Protestant comeback to the Catholic claim, Peter is the rock. And remember, we're looking at some comebacks now that fit within a category of objections that would concede that Peter is the rock, but deny the Catholic inference that we're making from that data, from that fact. Namely, that Peter is unique, has a unique role in being the foundation of the church. And one objection, as I stated before the break, appeals to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, where Paul teaches that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I left off with a quote from Protestant apologists Norman Geisler and Ralph McKenzie in their book, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences. And so I'm going to just read that quote again, unpack their argument, and then we'll offer a response. So, Geisler and McKenzie write the following. Two things are clear from this in Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. All the apostles, not just Peter, 
or the foundation of the church. And then they go on to add, and the only one who was given a place of uniqueness or prominence was Christ, the capstone. Now, Geisler and McKenzie seem to be making two arguments here. First, since the apostles, too, are identified as the foundation of the church, there's nothing unique about Peter being the rock of the church in Matthew 16, 18. And so the bottom line is, hey, what's the big deal about Peter being the rock in Matthew 16, 18? Even if we concede for argument's sake, he is the rock. The apostles collectively were referred to as the foundation of the church. So it's really no big deal to say that Peter is the rock. There's nothing unique about him being the rock of the church when all the apostles are the foundation of the church. That's basically the first argument that Geisler and McKenzie seem to be making. The second argument that Geisler and McKenzie seem to be making here is that if Peter were unique as the foundation of the church, well then he would have been distinguished from the other apostolic foundation stones as Jesus is distinguished. But since Peter's not distinguished by Paul within this category of foundation stones of the church, Geisler and McKenzie conclude that Peter is not unique. So those are our two arguments here. Those are two targets that we're going to address. So let's take the first argument that Geisler and McKenzie seem to be making, namely that since the apostles also are identified as the foundation of the church, there's nothing unique about Peter being the rock of the church in Matthew 16, 18. So that's our target here. And I'm going to argue here, there's an assumed hidden premise that Geisler and McKenzie never say out loud. And that hidden premise is, whenever something is said of two people, those two people must be equals with regard to what's said about them. In other words, remember, Geisler and McKenzie are saying, hey, the apostles are said to be the foundation of the church. And since Peter's, since both Peter and the apostles are said to be the foundation of the church, there's really no difference between the two. Peter's not unique. They, they're equal in being foundation stones of the church. So notice the premise. Whenever something is said of two people, the foundation metaphor is being used of Peter and the apostles, well then they must be equal with regard to what is said about them. Now, it's only if this premise is true can Geisler and McKenzie conclude that Peter has no unique status relative to the apostles based on this fact that the foundation metaphor is used both for Peter and the apostles. Only if this hidden premise is true would Geisler and McKenzie's argument succeed. The problem is that Geisler and McKenzie's hidden premise here is demonstrably false. Remember the hidden premise. Whenever something is said of two people, those two people must be equal with regard to what is said about them. They're saying the foundation metaphor is said of both Peter and the apostles. Therefore, Peter's not unique. The hidden assumption being that whatever is said about two people, they're equal with regard to what is said about them, okay? Well, here's the reason why this hidden premise is false. Consider, for example, how Jesus is called a shepherd in 1 Peter 1.25. Peter writes, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd in Greek poimena, poimena, uh, poimena, and the guardian, episcopon, of your souls. Now, this Greek word for shepherd, poimena, is also used to describe pastors in the church. So, for example, Paul writes in Ephesians 4.11, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, poimenas, and teachers. All right, so think about this. If we were to follow Geisler and McKenzie's logic, 
Well, then we'd have to conclude that Jesus has no unique status as our pastor, since the Bible says there are other pastors in the church too. Remember the hidden premise? Whenever two things are said of two people, they, those two people must be equal with regard to what is said about them. Well, both Jesus and others are said to be shepherds or pastors in the church. Does that mean Jesus and the other pastors in the church are equal and Jesus is not unique? Of course not. But if we were to follow the logic of Geisler and McKenzie and the argument they're making in response to the claim that Peter is uniquely the foundation of the church, well then we would have to say Jesus is not unique. Because remember, Geisler and McKenzie, again, are saying, Given the fact that the foundation metaphor is used both for Peter and for the apostles, Peter is not unique. Well, if we apply that logic to Jesus and other pastors, we would have to say, given that the image of pastoring is applied to both Jesus and others, then Jesus is not unique. So, we don't follow that logic when we're talking about Jesus and others being pastors. Why should we follow that logic when we're talking about Peter and the apostles and the foundation metaphor? Since this hidden premise is false, this hidden premise that's lurking in Geisler McKenzie's argument, well then we can conclude that the argument that Peter cannot be unique, a unique foundation of the church, because there are other foundations, does not succeed and is flawed. Okay, so that's how we would respond to that first argument that McKenzie and Geisler are making. Now, what about the second argument that seemingly they're making in their book, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, Agreements and Differences? He, recall, here was the second argument. If Peter were a unique foundation, this seems to be what they're getting at. If Peter were a unique foundation, well then, he would have had to been distinguished from the other apostolic foundation stones as Jesus is distinguished. But since Peter, since Paul does not distinguish Peter as a unique foundation stone like he does for Jesus, well then it would seem to follow that Peter is not unique in playing the role of foundation of the church. Now, recall that Geisler and McKenzie, recall the reason here. If Peter were unique as the foundation of the church, then Paul would have singled Peter out like he did Jesus, right? But why must we think that Paul would have to be singled, excuse me, why would we think that Peter would have to be singled out? Why would we think that Paul would have to single Peter out among the apostles like he did for Jesus? It's only reasonable to think that, that Paul would do that, if Paul's focus were Peter and his role as the rock of the church in relation to the other apostles. That's the only reason why Paul would need to single Peter out if that were his focus. If his focus were to teach us that Peter had a unique role in, relative to the other apostles as the rock of the church or the foundation of the church. But that's not Paul's focus. Paul's focus is on the Ephesians and their relation to the apostles and Jesus as pieces that make up the edifice of the church, which Paul calls a holy temple in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21. The Ephesians are pieces built into the edifice. The apostles and the prophets are the foundation, and Jesus is the cornerstone. They're in verse 21, in whom the whole structure of the church is joined together. So the argument here is that since Paul's concern is not the order among the apostles, as the foundation of the church, but simply the order that exists between the Ephesians, 
the apostles and prophets, and Jesus as that which makes up the edifice of the church, we shouldn't expect Paul to highlight Peter's unique status as the rock of the church. That is not his focus. That is not his purpose. And so there's no reason to expect Paul to single Peter out in his unique role as the rock of the church. The foundation metaphor is being used in Ephesians 2.20 in a different context and for a different purpose. We got to read it accordingly and not try to shoehorn its meaning into an entirely different context, such as that of Matthew 16.18, and the reverse is true as well. We shouldn't take the Catholic interpretation of Peter's the Rock in Matthew 16.18 and force its meaning onto Ephesians 2.20. We have to remember the point that we made in last week's episode. Metaphors can be used in more than one way in the Bible, within different contexts, and for different purposes. We saw already in this episode the the image of a pastor is used differently with regard to Jesus and other pastors in the church. The image of being the light of the world we saw in last week's episode can be used in reference to Jesus and Christians. Teacher, the, the, the image of teaching can be used in reference to Jesus and others, but in different contexts and in different ways, and in no way does the use of the same metaphor imply equality among the two, that they're somehow equal in their roles. We've looked at two Protestant comebacks or challenges, responses to the Catholic claim that Peter's the rock, one of which was saying, well, the metaphorical rock has to be Peter's confession of faith because the Catholic interpretation would suggest that there's a shift in focus from the identity of Jesus to Peter, which is not rooted in the text itself. We responded to that challenge and gave evidence that there is a shift in focus from what Peter says about Jesus and his confession of faith and what Jesus says about Peter, including the phrase, upon this rock, and thereby giving us reason to conclude that Peter is the metaphorical rock upon which Christ promises to build his church. The second Protestant comeback that we finished up with uh, before we went to our last break was the challenge that, hey, listen, Peter doesn't have any sort of unique role as the rock of the church. Even if we concede that Peter is the rock of the church in Matthew 16, 18, there's, it's really no big deal, and he's not unique in that role because the apostles are also called the foundation of the church in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. And so this objection concedes that Peter's the rock, but denies the Catholic inference that is made from Peter being the rock. And so we gave some reasons why this objection does not succeed. So now, for the remaining time that we have in this week's episode of The Catholic Reason, I'd like to address a, a Protestant challenge that derives from Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. But before I do that, I've, I've failed to mention to you guys that these Protestant comebacks to the Catholic claim that Peter is the rock I've written on in more detail in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, How to Answer Common Combacks to Catholic Arguments, that you can get at shop.catholic.com. That's the online bookstore for Catholic Answers. So everything that I'm sharing with you over the past two weeks, last week's episode of The Catholic Reason and this week's episode of The Catholic Reason, is found in my book, Meaning the Protestant Response. So you might be thinking to yourself, man, I can't remember all of this stuff just listening to you on the radio while I'm driving in my car, right? 
Well, first of all, you can download the show and re-listen to it and take notes if you'd like. Just search The Catholic Reason in any podcast search engine, any search engine where you for the for the app where you get your podcasts and just download the show and you can re-listen to it and take notes. But also, if you would like to buy the book, Meeting the Protestant Response, that would be helpful as well. Okay, so on to this Protestant challenge from Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what Paul writes there. When they perceived the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas, that would be Peter, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, the argument goes that Peter is named second in this list of pillars is proof that Peter is not unique in his role as the foundation of the church. So notice the argument there. Since Peter is listed second in the list of pillars, it follows, therefore, that he's not unique. So given his second place, his his placement, his second placement in the list, that seems to be evidence that Peter is not unique as a pillar of the church. And that would seem to refute the Catholic claim that Peter's rockness, that the fact that he's the metaphorical rock in Matthew chapter 16, 18, has no significance, right? Because he's just one rock among many, he's one pillar among many, as Paul is saying here in Galatians 2, 9. Protestant apologist Jason Ingwer from the Triad blog uh, online, the Triad blog blog online, he makes the argument this way. It's doubtful that people would have been grouping Peter with other apostles as pillars of the church and naming him second after James if he was thought of as a pope, right? So the idea here is, you know, if they thought Peter was the pope, they wouldn't be listing him second in this list of pillars and putting him after James. He continues, Remember, Catholics are the ones who place so much emphasis on the alleged significance of Peter's being a foundation of the church in Matthew 16, which is similar to the pillar concept in Galatians 2.9. It's highly unlikely that the early Christians believed that Peter was such a unique foundation of the church, the infallible ruler of all Christians, including the other apostles, yet perceived him as described in Galatians 2.9. So, I think we can summarize Ingwer's argument as follows. Premise one, if Peter were unique as the foundation of the church according to Matthew 16, 18, well then he would not have been listed second as a pillar of the church in Galatians 2, 9. Premise two, but Peter is listed second as a pillar of the church in Galatians 2, 9. Therefore, the conclusion, Peter is not unique as the foundation of the church according to Matthew 16, 18. All right, so how do we respond to this objection? Well, the listing second, being put second in the list, so I will argue here, doesn't mean that Peter is of a lower rank relative to James, right? Because the underlying assumption of, the, of premise one in the argument is that being listed second must reveal an inferior rank. But we can challenge this assumption, I'm going to argue that being of an inferior rank doesn't necessarily follow from being listed second. Why? Well, there are additional plausible explanations for Peter being listed after James in a way such that he's not being revealed to be inferior to James in his rank of authority. 
Now, one plausible explanation is that this order is just simply how it came to mind to Paul when he was writing. And this is on this is based on the assumption that there's really no significance to the order. So this is one response. We could just simply say, well, one plausible explanation is that Paul does not intend any significance to the order. He's just writing down the names as they came to mind when he was dictating, right, or writing. You know, when we list people or things, when we're writing an email or telling a story, typically we don't intend to list them in order of importance or greatness unless we have a reason to, right? And so without any any without any indication of such a reason in this text of Galatians 2.9, there's really no cause to think that Paul is doing so here. There's nothing in the text that would suggest Paul is listing them in this order for the sake of trying to convey something to us, some intended meaning. So this is one plausible explanation. There's no significance to the order, and Paul is just writing the names down as they came to his mind. And so on this explanation, we can see that it would be fallacious to conclude Peter is of an inferior rank of authority to James because he is listed second. That's assuming that there's a significance of the order, but someone could plausibly say there is no significance to the order, or at least we don't have any reason to think so. And so thereby, and therefore, Peter being listed second would not be evidence that Peter is of an inferior rank relative to James. Now, that, again, is based on the assumption that there is no significance to the order. Let's suppose that there is significance to the order, and Paul intentionally puts James first, Peter second. Would it thereby follow that Paul is teaching us that Peter is of an inferior rank of authority relative to James? The answer is no. It still wouldn't refute Petrine primacy because Paul elsewhere does give Peter higher rank. So consider um, in Acts chapter two, verse Acts chapter twelve, verse seventeen. Evidence suggests that this same James became the leader of Jerusalem church when Peter left after his imprisonment in Acts twelve seventeen. And recall in Galatians 1, 18-19, where Paul speaks of his first trip to Jerusalem shortly after his conversion, he, he speaks of it as implying Peter is in charge. He writes, Then after three years I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. So notice, Paul, according to Galatians 1, 18-19, went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, the implication being that he recognized Cephas to be holding a higher rank over and above James. He didn't go to see James. He went to see Cephas. And then he says, as an afterthought, I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. And so even if there is a significance to the order in Galatians 2.9, it wouldn't refute Paul's view of Peter as having a higher rank. And so the question becomes, well, what is Paul referring to? What is the significance of the order? And there are two possible explanations here, two possible answers. First, James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce affirms this in his The Epistle to the Galatians, a commentary on the Greek text in the New International Greek Testament commentary on pages 121 to 122. And then a second possible answer is that Paul is trying to undercut the claims 
of the Judaizers, or what he calls the circumcision party in Galatians 2.12, who were calling into question Paul's authority, and Paul is refuting those Judaizers and saying, hey, James has given me approval. So even if there is a significance to the order, it doesn't refute, or it doesn't thereby reveal Peter having an inferior rank of authority relative to James. Well, my friends, I am out of time for this week's episode. Again, you've been listening to The Catholic Reason on St. Michael Catholic Radio. Please um, look out for next week's episode. Again, every Thursday from 4 to 5 here on 94.9 St. Michael Catholic Radio. I look forward to chatting with you again next week. Until then, my friends, God bless you and take care.